If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hey everyone, welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. I am Keith Giles, one of three amazing hosts of this incredible podcast. Uh, I am the author of several books, including one that just came out called Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment. And, um, you know, I do a few other things on the side when no one's looking. Um, but I'm also joined by my other two co-hosts, uh, Jamal and Matt. So guys, why don't you guys, uh, you know, say howdy and introduce yourself. Hi, friends. My name is Jamal Javanji. It's great to be back on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast with you. I'm the author of Living for a Living that came out uh, in the, the past decade. Um, but uh, I'm actually a recent reader of a book. And I've read recently a book by the name of Life After Life. That's the title of it. And it's actually a compilation of 100 near-death experiences by an MD doctor who, who researched 100... Cl- people who have clinically died and came back and had incredible experiences. And he compiled it in a book. It's fascinating. But that's me. Well, great to be with you. That's you. That's you in a, in a nutshell, a Buckeye. A Buckeye. (laughs) Buckeye. I just learned what a Buckeye was. Thanks to you, Jamal. It's a nut. Yes. It's a, well, you know what? That explains a lot. Does that explain a lot right there? Yes. I would have said he was a nut a long time ago, but now all I have to say is he's a Buckeye. Actually, a a Buckeye is a poisonous nut, so it cannot be eaten. All right. Well, that makes me Matt DeStefano, the author of like, I don't know, how many books by now? Five, but only three matter because only three are with choir. So uh, <laughs> yes, happy, happy again to be here. And what do we have left in this Culture War series? We got we got this one and we got one more coming up. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that true? I think at least at least one more. Yes. I'm, we cannot speak its name. Oh, but yes, cannot. there is one after this one coming up and it's going to be amazing. Mm. All right. Well, good. Before we get into all that good stuff, uh, definitely want to give a huge shout out and a huge thanks to our sponsor today, which is Wild Foods. And their website can be found at wildfoods.co. And today I want to actually talk about their Cocotropic Superfood Cocoa Drink Mix because I tried it and it is wonderful. So what they've done is they've got these adaptogenic mushrooms and they're the perfect addition to your morning coffee, which is what I did, or butter coffee routine. If you haven't used any mushroom in your coffee, you're missing out. And I agree with that because I was so focused. I was, I was, I was like, I was full, full of energy. My wife did the same thing. Uh, she was putting it in her coffee and it really does help you focus. And there's so much research out there on the benefits of mush- benefits of mushrooms. And Wild Foods has the highest quality available on the market. So go to wildfoods.co and check out all the literature. And it is. It's really good stuff. And I, well, I have an announcement that you get 12% off if you're a listener of the Heritage Happy Hour. So how, use the how? Promo- how do you do that? How do you do use, that? I'm going to tell you. Use the <laughs> promo code HAPPYHOUR1212. HAPPYHOUR12 when you check out and you'll get 12% off your order. And... If you don't like it, well, I liked it. I liked that that mushroom stuff in my coffee. Well, Matt, Matt, I don't want to put you on the spot, but Please can do. I ask you, can I just ask you a few questions? Yeah, maybe you can just okay. Do you, do you in your uh, assessment of the product mm-hmm. would you say that there's ever any artificial flavorings? No, absolutely not. Never. Well, it's not just my opinion. That's just what they. That's what they say. That's a fact. Okay. That's a fact. How about, okay. 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 I just wanted to check with you. Um, does it come from small farms all over the world? That's what they say, and that's important. That is important. That's good. Cool. Yeah, what, what I'm what I'm curious about is because um, you mentioned it has turmeric powder, but a lot of times it's got like a really strong taste. I mean, is that is that the case with this with this uh, cocotropic drink? I didn't taste any strong turmeric powder. It no. tasted like uh, it made my coffee taste like a mocha. Ooh, yeah, and and Keith, Keith, I think it gives you the benefits of turmeric powder without the strong taste. I think that's. That's that's what I would say about about the product. Well, that's yeah, yeah. That's that's great. That's cool. Wow. So do this it, is, do it, yeah. folks, and everybody wins if you do it. Win, win, win. Oh, by the way, um, thank you for that, Matt. By the way, I really appreciate that. Um, 
We have a hotline, as everybody probably knows, um, but we still get questions. We do have a hotline. If you're new to the podcast, we have a hotline. Uh, the number is 240-343-7379. Again, 240-343-7379. You can call that. And you can leave a voicemail. You could text it. Um, you know, anything you want, 24-7. We love to get love on the, the hotline. So I love to get love. Call that. <laughs> and by, by love. By love, I really just mean uh, in, in, interaction. Um, but we do we do have a voicemail from what I'm from what I hear. So can we cue that up? Hi guys, my name is Louise. I'm calling from Stratford upon Avon in England. Love, love, love your show. I had a question. Uh, I know you talk a lot about deconstruction, deconstructing your faith, and so on. Just wondered if you have any thoughts on deconstructing the ego, and if you think that's a natural follow-on after you've deconstructed faith to deconstruct the ego and what that might look like. Thanks. Bye. All right, guys. What do you think? I, I, I feel. I feel like. I feel like we should let Jamal go first because I feel like this is. I, I, I could feel him getting excited <laughs> through the screen about this call. I know. I know. Yeah. Well, first of all, how cool is it that we have listeners in England? Isn't that cool? I didn't think and, I think of it. Yeah. And the hotline works all the way across the pond. Yeah. They have a cable yeah. that runs, it connects the Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which is it's still, it's still amazing. Uh, I know it's been around for a while, but it's really cool. First of all, thank you for calling and listening all the way from England. Um, I love the accents that the people who live in that island have. It's, it's fascinating. I love it. But um, I will say that. First of all, great question. Deconstructing the ego. You know, I don't, I, I might put it a little differently for, for just my understanding. Um, I don't think the ego is something that needs to be deconstructed as much, as much as it needs to be observed. Because if you can observe your ego, look at it, then what it does is it brings something else into view, which is the, the observer. So the one who's looking at the ego is not the ego. So the problem with the ego is when you're unconscious to it. Because when you're unconscious to it, it's kind of, you're kind of, it's like a fish in water. You don't see the water because you're in it. Mm. So when you, when you step out and observe the ego, there's another self that is not the ego. And that is what I would say is your truest and highest. And I would say your divine self. And if you can observe the ego, it has a story. You know, some of that story is tragic. Some of the story is not so tragic. It's not good or bad. It just is your experience. But when you step outside of it, the deconstruction really happens and the reconstruction actually happens the more you get present to the observer self, which is your highest self. And there's a distinction and it's a, it's a huge contrast between the ego and the truest and highest self. So you don't really need to deconstruct as much as you just need to watch it and observe it, in my opinion. Yeah, but maybe we need to deconstruct the concept of, of ego because I hear a lot of people and, and I, I can't specify which circles they roll in. But I hear a lot of people talking about how the ego is bad or we need to kill the ego. And I think that gets too dualistic and swings the pendulum too far. Like we do operate from the ego a lot and that leads to problems. But I think the ego, like you're saying, has its place. And and so maybe we just need to deconstruct the idea that the ego is good or bad and the ego just is, mm -hmm. you know? Right. So it's not, it's not, um, yeah, it's not this all or nothing thing. The ego is bad and you must 100% suppress it. It's that, uh, in other words, the, the problem isn't uh, ego. It's just maybe a bad ego or it's not an ego that's under control or, uh, or ego that's out of control, right? Is, is yeah, I would, I, would say, I would say your ego not knowing its proper function and role and, and overstepping its boundaries, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah, it's a tool. It's like anything. It's a tool that you can use um, for functioning, you know, but it's when you're unconscious to it, that's when, and, and because the ego has, um, there's a shadow to it. There's, there's trauma and there's pain in it. That's where the suffering and pain is found in the ego self. So that's my understanding. So when you are operating from that place and you're unconscious to it, then you perpetuate violence, victimization, victimhood, powerlessness, all of these things come from the ego. Um, and so that's, that's why you want to but it's not bad. You just want to, there's other positive aspects to it, but you just want to, my opinion is you, you really want to, you want to observe it. So you know how to use it. Cause there's times to use it and there's times to, to not use it, you know, to, right. so, you know, and that's, and that's, so, you know what you do? Yeah. We should do an episode totally. on this. Yeah, totally. Totally. Down, down the road. Yeah. 
and we also um, have a text that came into the to the uh, hotline. So can we cue that up? Quote: Hi guys, I'm Kosh, pronounced like Josh but with a K. I love your podcast and blogs. Thank you for being open-minded and loving. You guys have a bigger impact than you know on Christians like me who feel alone and surrounded by fundamentalism all the time. I had a question that I would love to know your thoughts on. After going on a deployment to Iraq last year, I came back with my belief in just war theory thoroughly shaken. The idea that sometimes violence is necessary to achieve long-term peace or stop a greater evil just doesn't seem sustainable to me. It seems like a lot of the violence that I was directly responsible for or witnessed there was not conducive to creating healing or restoration in any way. What are your guys' thoughts on the just war theory and if violence is ever a viable option for Christians? Unquote. Hmm. Wow. Well, that tech, first of all, the te- that text is extremely timely. Yeah. Because, you know, instead of, I mean, we, we could answer the caller's question, but Let's just devote the rest of the episode to that question. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. So that, I think it brings up um, our, our next segment of the show, which is our Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, I'm Martin Brooks, and some people call me a heretic. Hi, uh, Martin. Martin. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm doing good. That was an enthusiastic greeting. Thanks, yes, guys. Pardon, pardon, our, yeah, pardon our enthusiasm. <laughs> It's part of the shtick. So, uh, yeah. So, Martin, thank you so much for being our guest on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. And um, so I guess what we always do is when we kick these things off is we we always want to know, why is it that some people uh, would consider you a heretic? Well, I, I think it started when I came back from the mission field and started saying nice things about Muslims. Um, so... Mm-hmm. Many of the things that I had been taught about Muslims were only partially correct. And when I went to the mission field and actually met Muslims and had good Muslim friends and was able to ask them about some of the things I'd been taught, uh, I realized we weren't being very grace-filled toward Muslims. So then I came back to the States and said, maybe we need to rethink um, what we're saying and, and how we're approaching Muslims. And that's when I got called heretic. Mm. Yeah. So what were what were some of those specific things that stand out? Um, just sort of demonizing the other, uh, assuming the worst about the other. Um, you would hear things. I mean, there were factual things like uh, Muslims uh, worship a moon god. Well, I've never met a Muslim that claimed to worship uh, a moon god. <laughs> Um, okay. yeah. yeah, that's new to me. I haven't well, it, it has to do with their their symbol that they use, and people you know project onto sure. them. Oh, um, the crescent. The yeah, crescent. right, well, right. So, but, but but Martin, by that by that analogy, uh, a Muslim could correctly say that Christians worship a wood god because we we have the symbol of a cross, and so we worship <laughs> wood. Or the death penalty. <laughs> or the death penalty. Yes, exactly. We worship uh, state sponsored um, execution. Right. Right. And I, I never used uh, that particular argument. I was just always kind of taken aback when people quote some web source as though that's authoritative. And, you, you know, usually ask mm-hmm. these people, how many Muslims do you actually know? And um, it's usually pretty low mm-hmm. to none. Yeah, I think that's the that's the key, isn't it? I think um, that was my experience that I, I probably did because you don't have anything to compare it to. I used to sort of assume that, yeah, some of those things I heard about Muslims were true until I met Mm -hmm. some, like you said. And then once I started meeting them and getting to know them and I knew their names and I had conversations with them and we had shared meals together and things like that, it was suddenly like, wow, they're not like this at all. They don't all want to kill us. They don't hate us for our freedoms. They are not trying to impose. And and, and when you say (laughs) they, you know, there's 1.5 to 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. And I'm sure whatever mm-hmm. story you come up with, you can probably find one that uh, will agree with you. Um, but what what I think has happened is people have had uh, anecdotal experiences. Uh, th- this is a gracious version. They've had an anecdotal experience with um, an, a Muslim that they've encountered somewhere. And so then they come back and they, they write a book about it. 
and extrapolate that and and think that everybody, you know, claim that all Muslims believe this particular thing, whatever it is, um, about gin or mm-hmm. um, alcohol or oppression of women or uh, Sharia law, and you can just find a whole lot of variety as you encounter Muslims around the world. Um, most Muslims don't even live in the Middle East. You know, they live in Indonesia or, or uh, India, outnumber um, the Muslims in the Middle East. So we, we just project too much on the community. And, you know, we just don't extend grace to them. So when I began to challenge the church uh, on those topics, uh, it just got a lot of pushback. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so what, yeah. um, what are some things that you have found to be, it seems like this is a sort of, there's two fronts, right? There's sort of what's effective in that you have found in helping Christians to rethink this. And then what's, what's been effective, I guess, sort of, maybe we can do this as a, as a second question is, you know, what, what's, what is effective in speaking to Muslims as compared to the us and them kind of approach? Right. Um, So, so now I work with a, with a ministry called peace catalyst. And we essentially try to create safe spaces for Muslims and Christians to get to know each other. And we know we do that in, in a lot of different ways. But sometimes it's hard to convince Christians to come engage um, Muslims. There's, there's this fear that um, people have yep. based on um, filling in the gaps in their own minds. You know, we know some things about Muslims, and, and then we try to create this this narrative that makes sense to us and, and we end up filling in the narrative with fiction mm. um, so I've, I have found for conservative Christians which is is my background um, that that you need to use scriptural examples to sort of give them permission to to engage things like um, Jesus intentionally taking his disciples across uh, the sea to engage the the Gentiles. Things like um, uh, Peter's uh, vision mm-hmm. uh, in Acts ten, you know, and and going into into Cornelius's house, and when he shows up, he says, "Now you know the law says it's it's forbidden for me to be with you, but God has shown me that." You know, he he is more inclusive than my religious system was. Um, you see, in is it at seventeen where Paul's on Mars Hill and mm-hmm. says, you know, God made from one man all the nations, and He determined the times and the places that they would live, and He did so so that people would reach out to Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. So it's always per- perplexing to me why um, believers. Uh, Christian people would say, uh, you know, why are all these internationals, why are all these foreign-born people coming to the United States? Well, Paul thought that uh, God designed it that way, that God determined when and where people would live. And he's given the church, you know, 2,000 years to figure out how to respond to that. And right now we're, we're choosing fear over uh engagement um so yeah the 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 bible narratives help the christians and yet i've also stood in front of church groups and and you see people with their arms crossed yeah like you know i'm projecting on them that they're thinking you're naive you don't know that they're all out to kill us you know and and so i have found that sometimes you have to start not with the bible with christians you have to start with Maslow's hierarchy and address the needs of, okay, why, what is this about our group identity that is so threatened by another group? Um, what, why is your safety not um, a, a factor? You know, in, in the U.S., the Muslims make up 1% to 3% of the, of the total population. We just don't have much, it shouldn't have any fear. That um, they're they're going to somehow get a, a political voting block that can impose Sharia law on right. on all of us. Um, 
And in fact, as a minority, uh, they are very gracious and accommodating. You know, they, they right. want you to know that they're hmm. not um, connected to or associated with the crazies in their tribe. You know, it's not that there aren't people that call themselves Muslim that, that want to hurt um, Americans or uh, Christians or people that, that, that don't call themselves Muslim. But, you know, the same could be said of white nationalists who call themselves Christians. So, you know, every every tribe has its crazies. Yes. And you yes. need to uh, honor the people that that you meet. And I, I say to Christians all the time, you need to talk to the person across the table from you instead of some stereotype that that we've made up in our head. Mm. Exactly. I love that you you were talking about the Bible earlier and and listing off these stories that we could mention, and we could mention Luke four when Jesus mentions naming the Syrian and they want to throw him off a cliff for 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 saying that our faith should transcend the borders. You have to remember our greatest prophets were blessing those who are our enemy. But I think what you guys are doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, and and correct me if if this this is wrong that it doesn't have as bigger impact is there's this whole thing about like social contact hypothesis that only when we befriend the other quote unquote is when our minds actually get changed about them. So we could, we could do biblical things all day long, but I think on the ground with what you guys are doing is probably having a much, much bigger impact in um, shedding the fear and putting aside the the need to other brother. So, you know, back in the 50s, Gordon Allport wrote a book called The Nature of Prejudice. And he was dealing with race issues, but he talked about scapegoating and um, how we we label people as a way to dismiss them. Uh, You know, we will call call someone a heretic. We will call somebody um, a Muslim as though... That's that's an insult. Right. Um, and yeah. we, we just saw uh, a meme of uh, Congresswoman uh, Pelosi, you know, dressed mm-hmm. in a hijab as though that was was an insult. And I love that you mentioned Luke four, because that that is foundational to to what we to what we do. You know, Jesus comes to his hometown and says, I've mm. come to proclaim good news, you know, freedom. For the prisoner, uh, good news for the poor, sight to the blind. It's the year of jubilee, right. and then later in that chapter, when it became clear that this year of jubilee, this expansive mm. version of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, wasn't just for the religious tribe. It was, you know, it was for the Syrian general. It was for the the woman, um, the foreign woman who took care of the prophet. You know, God's reaching out to Mm -hmm. other, the spirit of God is active in other places than just our small tribe. So what Peace Catalyst does is try to find how, um, where is the Holy Spirit active in our, in our Muslim friends? What can I affirm that, you know, Richard Rohr talks about the universal Christ. You know, where can I see Christ at work in others? You know, you think about um, Melchizedek showing up. Um, you know, God was working outside of, of the Jewish religious system. You think about the wise men uh, showing up, you know, have been looking at the stars in Persia, but but Jesus is important, you know, because God was doing something significant. So when we approach our Muslim friends, it's not the message is not trade your list of rules for my list of rules. Mm-hmm. The the posture is come alongside of them and and ask and observe what God is doing uh, among them. What mm. can, what what can we learn from them? You know, it's it's like. You, you fast for 30 days each year, you know, from sun up to sun down. You know, if I miss lunch, I get a headache. Mm-hmm. So how does, this fast, <laughs> how does this fasting thing work for you? You know, are, at the end of it, are you, do you feel so close to God? Or at the end of it, are you like, whew, I'm glad that's over. Now I can go back to normal life. But it's this respectful approach of 
of you and me together pursuing God. And that's what Peace Catalyst does. We try to set up those scenarios where we can walk together. Yeah. Well, I think that's amazing. I, I have a, my best friend is Buddhist. And the analogy we use is that my perspective, I'm pointing at the moon. And his perspective, he's pointing at the moon. And our Muslim brothers and sisters are pointing at the moon from their perspective. But we're all pointing in the same direction, right? So, yes, of course, there's differences. Yes, of right. course, we have our intricacies and our doctrines and our dogmas and our theologies and our history for good or for bad. But we're all, I think, trying to say the same thing, which is, what is the true nature of God? What is God really like? And how do we live in relationship with the with divinity? Right. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So we, we try to we try to move it from being a dualistic us against you to you and me together. Right. Yeah. 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 I like what you said, uh, Martin, about sort of taking the posture of learning hmm. something like like we have something right. to learn. Um because uh, it so because the, uh, the I think the root of that fear is ignorance, right? And so the, really, the, one of the best ways to overcome that uh, that fear is to remove the ignorance. And the only way to do that is to actually sit across the table from people who are different and and listen to them and learn something and adopt that posture of learning. And, and that's what I found. The more time I've spent with Muslim people. Uh, I mean, I, I posted several times <clears throat> on Facebook, you know, Muslims are beautiful people and dearly loved of God. And you would think I had just said the most, you know, offensive, heretical thing you could possibly say when I can't even, I can't even believe a Christian, any Christian has any basis for getting offended or angry or upset that I would suggest that Muslims are beautiful people and dearly loved of God. But oh my gosh, they do. Um, and again, it's because of these assumptions that they have. And again, they've never met any Muslim people, so they don't know. Uh, that they're beautiful people and that they don't know. Uh, they don't, they don't, they're not open to the idea that God might love them as well. Well, um, yeah, you know, we're, yeah. you know, we're all created in the image of God. You know, that we're, we're related through uh, Adam and Eve or, you know, through, through our history. And can we, can we affirm yeah. that in the other, or do we just look for where we're different and we're encouraging people to look for where we're the same? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and what and what we must realize is if we just look at Christianity, uh, we're as different. For sure, I mean, Protestants are as different as Catholics, <laughs> are as different as Orthodox, are as different as hardcore Reformed and Presbyterian. I mean, uh, you want to? I can go down the list. Forty, forty thousand. Yeah, yeah. They're the charismatic they're, and a Reformed person like are so yeah. far apart. They might be more yeah, far apart than the, the average Christian, and average Muslim. I don't know. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that was one of the shocking things that I realized when you you kind of touched on Martin was that uh, a lot of the Muslims that I met. Um, were very curious about Jesus and would come and sit and read through the Gospel of Mark with us, and or come to our house church and and hang out with us, and we're not offended at all, and we're actually really interested in learning about Jesus. Which is funny because, um, you know, I, there here here are Muslims, um, showing curiosity about what we think about Jesus, and you know, them coming and and coming to that, coming to our gatherings, coming to fellowship with us. Uh, with curiosity about that, wanting to say, what can I learn? And uh, yeah, I just wish more Christians had that same kind of attitude. And yet sometimes Christians are afraid. I've had people afraid to join us for fear they would be hurt if they came into a room with Muslims in it. And it's just, it, it's sad. Um, yeah. So yeah, and but just to, to be clear, you know, like Peace Catalyst does not try to convert Muslims to an American expression of, of Christianity. Uh, what we what we do is we point people to Jesus as as the perfect example, right. <clears throat> uh, the person that we should uh, emulate and and follow. So it's a it's a Jesus centric, a Christ centered um, a ministry or, or work um, instead of a Christian centered ministry. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, that's one of the things I appreciated is that, that it's not about it's not about some sort of um, subversive, creative way for Christians right. to evangelize Muslims and make. You know, the, your goal is not to make Correct. Muslims into Christians. Correct. Our our, our goal yeah. is to seek God together, and we find Jesus and mm-hmm. a wonderful um, pathway to to do that. Yeah, and they're creating creating connections and friendships and relationships between Christians and Muslims that are based on 
just genuine human interaction, which right. is, is a beautiful, refreshing thing. Right. Um, so let me let me just ask you this part here. So Martin, if anyone's listening to you talk about Peace Catalyst and they're like, man, that sounds really cool. How do I get involved with Peace Catalyst? Is there one in my city or is there one in my town? Um, yeah. Can I, or can I maybe start something like this where I live? I mean, where can people find out about that and what would they, what should they do about that? Well, on, on our webpage, peacecatalyst.org, uh, is a is a good starting place. You can follow us on Facebook. Um, <clears throat> Peace Catalyst International is how it's known there. Uh, the different cities sometimes have uh, regional Facebook pages. Like I have one that's called Peace Catalyst International Midwest Region. Um, so those are ways to find out. But we are actively trying to recruit people to be peacemakers. Blessed are the people. You want to be blessed? Come join us and be a, be a peacemaker. Um, you know, you know mm. we, follow the, we follow the Prince of Peace. We build intentional relationships with Muslims. We invite Christians to join us in those relationships. Um, and we're just excited to see what doors the, the Lord opens as, as Christians deconstruct some of the things they've been taught uh, not only about their own faith, but about Islam too. Um, and what we see is we, we watch our Muslims deconstruct what they have learned about mm-hmm. Christians and, and even Islam sometimes. You know, we don't, we don't try to dismantle Islam. You know, we, we let um, the Holy Spirit lead us to the truth and, and to the conversations as they seem relevant. And, that, and that's why we just read through one of the Gospels uh, instead of doing topical studies. We don't want to seem like we're trying to ambush right. uh, anybody. Yeah, that's excellent. So yeah, that's that's the best way to do it. We we have a we have. I'm pretty proud of what we're, is going on in Sarajevo. You know, when it was Yugoslavia, you had Muslim minority people uh, living under Serbian Orthodox and Croatian Catholics and having to navigate that interreligious uh, situation. Well, then, of course, it all fell apart in war, but there have been Muslim peacemakers mm. there navigating that for years in a very contentious environment. Our Peace Catalyst people arrange trips for Americans, Europeans, Middle Easterners to go learn from these Muslim peacemakers, you know, how, mm. how have you navigated this? Um, so, you know, we the churches have done so many short-term mission trips where, you know, we go paint a wall somewhere or take clothing somewhere and all those help ministries need to happen. But we're calling people to go on learning trips, um, go, go to a Muslim country and, and see who is there, what they're doing, how they approach life, how they approach their faith. And, and we will learn from from that. Yeah. So we're inviting people to join us. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah. That's a, yeah. Sounds like powerful stuff. So if you're listening, please go check out the website and Martin, we appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a blast. It's been uh, enlightening and informative. Well, yeah, thank thanks, you. Martin. So thank you. Thank you. Awesome. That was great. So, so uh, great, great conversation. Um, love what peace catalyst is doing. And uh, there was some really good stuff there. So I think, the great thing is a lot of what we talked about with um, uh, with Martin Brooks is the um, leads us into our topic for this podcast, which is the question about just war. And um, I know I have a lot of strong opinions about this. I think, I believe we're mostly on the same page, but I guess we'll find out as we go along here. Um, just war, right? What do you guys think? Uh, can Christian can Christian support war? Is there a time for war? Is war sometimes something that's that's a good thing that it's necessary? No. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's what I think too. All right, thanks, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> I can't tell you how how much I would love this podcast right stopped. now if this if was really the end. If this was really thanks, everybody. All right, let's go to the announcements. Ah, uh, you know. <laughs> We, but I guess yeah, we we've only been going a for bit, a little. Right? We have we have to fill some more time. I think we have to. I think we had to flesh that I, out a little bit. I struggle with the question. I do too. To be honest, can, okay. Why? Why? 
Okay. Can a Christian, is it a, is just war a viable option for Christians? Well, first, okay. And not to be nitpicky here, but what does that mean? It's, it's, un, it's not okay for Christians, but it's okay for everybody else. I mean, I, I just don't see the world like that anymore. I, I understand mm-hmm. the listener and I understand the question. It's a great question. Um, but I would, I would say it a little differently. I would say how effective is, right. is just, is just war or war for any reason for that matter. War in general. Yeah. yeah. And and th- this is this goes beyond a certain sect or or, or label like Christian because I, honestly I don't think Jesus taught us to look at the world that way as through like you know I mean it's just people so I don't think war um, accomplishes healing or restoration I think if that I think that's pretty clear um, I think but I get the heart of his question which is is there ever a time for it like is it a sin is it good or bad, you know, kind of a thing. Um, yeah. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not against just war. However, I just, I'm not against it. Like it's a sin, like it's wrong. I don't, I wouldn't say it's wrong. Well, and that was what Augustine was first trying to do within Christian doctrine is to uh, ask that very question. And, and I think what he came up with, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, was it's like the last, last, last resort in in doing something that you think is right, but you still lament the fact that you're doing it. Right. Um, so in some instances, in the most extenuating circumstances, it could be necessary, but you you would um, you would need to lament the fact that I, I have a problem with that on a number of levels mm-hmm. um, because it could be used and abused to to suggest that maybe. Oh, going to a war with Iran right now is ow. Oh, it's we need to lament it, but it's necessary. Right. Or and and we could do it to justify um, invading the Middle East to begin with, like Afghanistan, yeah. Iraq, like all these. You know, and, and then we start using the just war and say, well, this is extenuating circumstances. And, and most some some of us are like, no, the fuck it isn't. No, see, this is and this is this is to me the problem with the whole just war theory, uh, it, just as a concept. Um, that frankly. Those that embrace just war theory um, pretty much have never met a war that wasn't just or justified, right? In other words, you always look for uh, those things that will justify it to say, okay, because of these horrible evils, this is a just war. Um, and, and so that's kind of the problem, I think. And then even even the war that I think most people, um, if you want to have a conversation about just war, uh, as, as just, uh, you know, sometimes this is this thing that, you know, um, you have to do it reluctantly, right? Because this is the only way to solve the problem. Right. Well, so world war two is probably the most, the, the biggest example, right. right? It's world war two, because, Obviously. you know, but the, yeah. you know, I think most of us have been told that. And, and, and if that's all you've ever been told, then you would say, well, yeah, the, the best example of just war would be world war two. However, it really doesn't fit the criteria when you look at it. Um, and especially if you look at the, um, the, really the cost of that war, and I don't just mean in money, I mean, in just, you know, uh, destruction and death and, um, what it did to our planet. I mean, what, what we, what we ended up with, with the fruit of World War II was, uh, the death of 80,000 people in Hiroshima. 60,000 people dead after that due to radiation poisoning, 73,000 people killed in Nagasaki, another 70,000 dead after that due to radiation, 50 plus years of a Cold War, uh, the development of nuclear weapons and and a nuclear arms race that continues to this day. We have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the planet multiple times over. Um, We have a total of 70 million uh, dead at the end of World War II. And I mean, that's a massive, massive cost um, that we're still paying, that we're still suffering from today. And I understand that people, you know, the, the argumentation is for World War II is that, um, well, you know, this is the only way we could have stopped the Nazi uh, Germanys, but the, 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 you know, Hitler and all that. But that isn't really the case either. Um, so what, you know what I think we should do is, um, if you're a Patreon supporter, we're going we're gonna to record a special conversation uh, just for our Patreon supporters to talk about World War II specifically and go into a lot of more depth and detail about World War II and how it could have been prevented um, through nonviolent means. 
and uh, we'll do that. We'll do that over in our um, uh, bonus content. Well, I think, I think first of all, um, it's interesting that Jesus talked about love your enemies, you know, and do good to those who persecute you and hurt you and all that. But even with that said, that that's not actually done by people who would say, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so people, you know, Christians you know, will always say, well, we're not, you know, we're not Jesus, we're right. sinful, all these kinds of things. But, but there's no attempt to do this at a, at a collective level, uh, national level. Um, even though it's, you can read it, you know, going back to the people who like say, okay, we really, you know, follow the Bible. We follow the teachings of Jesus. You can read that and it's still not done. It's rarely done even on, on a personal level. Forget about the the national. It's not done on a personal level. I'll just put that. No, it's not. So I, it's useless. The teachings of Jesus. <laughs> what do you say? Doesn't work. Essentially, yeah. Okay, and then, so here's and I'm not saying that to be. I mean, well, let me say be, I, it, be, it works. It works if we would do it, but we don't do it, well, so therefore well, it doesn't work. Well, but why don't we do it? So that's the thing. Reading it and knowing that Jesus said to do it does not produce the the, the actual actions of peace. And I think that's where we have to really look a little deeper and go, well, why doesn't it? So <laughs> you're never, just because Jesus said, love your enemies, doesn't mean you're going to do that. <laughs> it's, it's just not, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's actually impossible right. to do. Well, it's and not so, impossible to do. You just have to decide that you want to at least attempt it. Well, but you can attempt it, but you're going to fail at it. Unless, So here's my point. Here's my point. I don't think Jesus is issuing a new command. A lot of times what we do is we take the teachings of Jesus and we'll make them into new laws. Well, it's the law of of loving your neighbor. You know, it's like, that's not actually a law. And um, it's not a law in the way that the old covenant was the law that the, we have those commandments. I think that's how we approach it. That's where we go wrong. I think what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about a completely different reality. So and this is where I think the, the conversation about ego comes in, because you cannot have a war without ego. The ego is responsible for all warfare, in my opinion. This is my understanding. All conflict in the world comes from the ego. And as long as the ego tries to honor the commands of Jesus, you're going to fail at it. You can try all you want. You're going to fail because it's not possible. I don't think Jesus is actually giving instructions to the ego. I think Jesus is describing a new realm, a new reality. That's just my understanding of, and I think, because I think if we don't embrace, so here's the thing, you have a bunch of people that are identified with the ego feel, and then, and then we hear the teachings of Jesus and we're going, Whoa, man, that's a high standard. And then we try to do it and feel like failures and then call ourselves sinners and then repent of that. And try to do better next time. And that's the whole, and that's the miserable history of Christianity. But I don't think that's the whole. It's it's like trying to put uh, the finest wine in an in a in a container that is just full of holes. It doesn't work. It cannot contain it. Right. It's so you almost have to have a completely new apparatus to be able to understand that. So this idea of peace, you know, really comes down to. When we stop identifying with the ego, we identify with the highest self, the truest self. There's no war to fight. And again, a war on war is still war. A, a war against religion is still a war against religion. A war against, you know, whatever it is, these wars we fight on a personal level, um, what you see out there in the world, what you see in, at, a, at a societal level level against nation against nation is simply a mirror reflection of what goes on at the personal level until we stop fighting our own personal wars. We're never going to see peace on the earth. I'm convinced of that. Well, I I would say, I think that's one, one perspective. Um, I mean, I disagree that it doesn't work because I think we do have lots of examples um, throughout history of people who really did um, succeed in loving their enemies. Um, we see the early church doing it for about 300 years. We see the Anabaptists doing it. We see examples of it, you know, all over the world, actually, of, of examples of people who were, who took those commands seriously. And I don't think, I don't think of it in the way you're saying, like, uh, of, of a commandment uh, in the sense of following this new rule, set of rules. I do think it's more, frankly, I think it's actually more of like the, uh, what Rene Girard would call mimetic in the sense that um, our violence is mimetic. And so Jesus is saying, you know, um, to follow me in the sense of I'm someone who isn't violent. I'm someone who who doesn't behave that way towards my enemies. And 
by following that example that Jesus has set, that we can also we can accomplish that, that we can do that, and uh, and I think there are examples of us doing that. And I think, but I do agree with you that you really can't you can't fight a war without people willing to fight in that war. I think if more Christians took seriously that command of saying, uh, "I'm going to love my enemy," which means, by the way, I would never I would never kill anyone I loved. I think that's pretty obvious. I think most people can agree that if you love somebody, you really love someone, you're probably not going to kill them. And I think that's very simple to understand. And so if if we are saying that we are followers of Jesus, then then and we're commanded to love our enemies, that step one, don't kill them. Um, simply because they were born in another country and they're wearing a different color uniform and they marched under a different flag or whatever. Um, what what we don't understand is that quite often when Christians do go to war, they're killing other Christians. I mean, this is the this is that insanity of it where basically we become the tool of the state because of nationalism. We let, let ourselves be manipulated. And, you know, like I, I tell the story in Jesus Untangled about this. Um, it's actually a story Philip Yancey tells, but I, I, I share it in the book about how this is a true story. There's a guy during, again, during World War II, and um, he was walking around in the morning after this, uh, the Battle of the Bulge and uh, was basically killing uh survivors like German soldiers that were laying on the battlefield. If they were wounded, he was just walking around shooting them dead because they had no way to deal with the wounded. They have nowhere to put them. They couldn't take care of them. Um, and so it was, that was what he was doing. And so as he's walking around doing this, he sees a German soldier sitting under a tree and he's actually not wounded. He's just exhausted. And so he walks up to the guy, he p- picks up his rifle and he's like getting ready to kill this guy. And the guy in English, now this German soldier in English says, um, give me a moment to pray. And so the guy goes, he's shocked. And he says, oh, you speak English? He goes, yeah. And he goes, are you a Christian? And the German says, the German soldier says, yes, I'm a Christian. And the man says, oh, I am too. So they actually, this is insane. They sit down together, this, this uh, American soldier and this German soldier. The, one of them pulls out a Bible. They share some scriptures together. They share pictures of their family. They pray for each other and each other's family members. Um, and after they finish praying, uh, the American soldier stands up looks at this German brother in Christ that he just spent this time in fellowship with and says, uh, I guess we'll meet again in heaven one day and pulls out his gun and shoots the man dead. And that's the kind of insanity that Christians uh, participate in when we, when we prioritize our identity in our, our nationalism or our tribalism, right? And not in our identity as followers of Christ that no, no, if we're following Jesus, we wouldn't do these things. If that was our priority. Well, yeah. And I think that's why, I think that's why both of you guys are actually right. And, and, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Jamal, what you're saying is that we don't actually follow Jesus because we read about it and, and, or that we, Jesus said to follow him. We follow this way because it's our true nature. And see the, 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 the story is uh, obscenely powerful and, but also grotesque at the same time that you just told Keith, because I mean, it's obvious. Um, but this is, this is all, this is what happens when we identify with a us tribe and a them tribe. And it wasn't that they had some shared identity in the nature of the universal Christ um, or right. Jesus. It was that they were German and American, and they were therefore enemies. And and I did write a book about this stuff from the Blood of Abel. If anyone wants to check it out on why we have this violence towards each other, I mean, even to the point where they they just read their scriptures together and hung out, and I'm sure had a nice time. And then and then one blows the other one away. Um, that's why I think both you guys are right. That I think I think Jesus does both things. He tries to get us to our our identity in Christ. And, and and when we do that, right. we see that in the other, and therefore we don't have war with each other. And he also says at the same time, mm-hmm. follow me because I'll show you that way because you need a model, because we are mimetic, because we are going to follow someone. This is just our anthropology. It's right. it's the reality of the situation. And so therefore I'll be that icon. That's why I love Richard Rohr when he talks about Jesus as an icon rather than some sort of metaphysical thing we have to affirm as an icon that we can really we can really do on a human level 
we can do this Jesus way. Right. And it's Gandhi, not, it's not, it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not some abstract thing. Well, you know? right, right. I think that story though, here's, here's what's interesting. That story uh, from the Yancey talked about like that, that Christian American soldier found a Christian German soldier and gave him, you know, showed him a little bit of mercy because he was a Christian, gave him a little bit of a few moments to pray. And, and let's just say he didn't shoot him because he was a Christian. Would that make it any better? Yes. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think, no, 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 no. I don't, so I don't, much better. actually, I, I have the opposite view. I, I think if he did not, let's say he spared him because he's a Christian. He's always my brother. I'm not going to shoot you. I think it sh- highlights the evils of Christianity and of sectarianism because he killed all those other people because they weren't Christians. No, but he didn't know they were Christians. Doesn't I bet you that happened and probably were. They were human. They were human. So we yes, don't, no, we don't spare. It's like, but if he was, but if he was a Muslim, he would have blown him away. Totally. Is that totally, what you're saying, totally, like totally. Jamal? And then that's more evil. Yeah. That that's I think the evil of the sectarian. Yeah, I don't care what his beliefs are. He's a human right. being. So therefore, you don't kill well, him. No. So the thing, that, and I'm saying the same thing. No, but Jesus isn't saying don't kill Christians. Right. Jesus is saying don't kill other anybody. But our, so again, our identity isn't found because we're followers of Christ, whatever that means. Our identity is in the fact that we are. This is what I think when you when you have a when you come out of the ego based identity, which can associate with religious tribe or national tribe or whatever. What that's all ego. So, so stepping out of that, you re- you recognize self and all these other people as human beings. And I get, I think that's what Jesus was really the heart of what he was trying to say is like, this is why you don't do that because it's really yourself, you know, you're the, it, it, right. Cause yeah, Jesus actually said, love your enemies, which is not, he wasn't saying only love people like you, which would be, oh, I'm only going to love Christians. But if you're not a Christian, I'm going to sure. blow your brains out. No, Jesus following Jesus would be, uh, I'm going to love both people who are like me and people who aren't like me. And that's what Jesus did too, right? So again, that would be following that example and that, that, that teaching that what I should do is love even those who don't love me, even those who aren't in my tribe, who aren't like me, who don't believe like me, think like me, or any of totally, those things. Totally, totally. And, and if we did that, then all war, not just, but, just war, but all war Of course, war yeah, you wouldn't have war. But I don't think that's actually possible from an egoic identification. If you, as long as human beings are identifying with the ego, you, you can uh, try to obey that command and it will not, ha- it will, just won't happen. So how did Gandhi I, do that? How did Gandhi do it? I don't, cause I don't think Gandhi had ego identification. I think Gandhi was awakened to his higher self. Yeah, but he would Gandhi- say, but, but Gandhi would say, and he says this in his own writings that he followed that path because he was impressed by Jesus and his teachings. He read the Sermon on the Mount every day. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know what I mean? That was Gandhi a driving was a Hindu, factor. I know he was. I know he was, but he was a follower of Jesus. He would not say he's a Christian, but right. by the way he lived his life, he was following that example and that teaching and therefore doing okay. a better job of following Jesus than most Christians I know. And, and the Buddha. The, the Buddha also lived like Jesus before Jesus' writings were available and, he, and before right. Jesus was even alive on the earth. So uh, right. the idea is when, but I also could, you can make the point that the Buddha did not identify with ego, which is the whole point. It's, it's this concept of when you don't, you didn't, we don't need Jesus' teachings to be peaceful like the Buddha demonstrated, like Gandhi demonstrated. Gandhi was not taking his instructions from the Sermon on the Mount. I think he could recognize the truth of that from the Sermon on the Mount, looking at it and going, but I think you, that the internal resonation. So if we're taking our, if we're taking our commands from written words that Jesus gave, then I think that's where the problem is. It's like, this is, you know, again, it goes back to, I remember listening to a presidential candidate last election. They said, uh, do you, do you, uh, is the Bible your source of authority for how you interact in the world? And he goes, no, I love the Bible, but I tell you what, I love my wife, not because the Bible says to love my wife, just because I do. <laughs> and I love my family because I do. Again, what's the, what's the reference point? Where, are we referencing scripture? Are we referencing um, some guru that lived 2,000 years ago as our point of reference? Or is the, is the reference internal? And I honestly think that if you're going to follow Christ, you have to follow an internal reference guide. And by Christ, I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about this reality of divinity that is at the level of being. And I, that's where I think we're missing it because people who aren't identified with their true and highest self, these are just commands to be strived for and we fail at it. And we're never going to, and again, it comes down to our own personal life. What wars are we fighting? You know, have we achieved world peace? <laughs> And I, you know, yeah, and that's, and that's a, that's a good point too, because I was thinking about this driving home from work today on, on what I might want to say in, in, in this episode. 
And I kept thinking, like, we all talk about war, just war. Is it justified? When do we do this? When do we do that? But, but I think a lot of people would not send themselves. Oh, yeah. And so it's like, well, we're not willing to do these things that we want to talk about and theorize over. So I've always found it interesting that, you know, I don't even have a place to talk about just war because I'm not, I'm not about to go. So therefore, I can't justify doing it. Because I have to, I have to learn how to be at peace with myself first before I can even abstractly talk about these ideas. And if I'm not really at peace with myself, if I'm if I'm battling this thing internally or whatever, that's where I think the heart of it is at. So I, I think you're 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 right. Like if if we're having this big time war with our ego, we're not going to be at we're we're not at a place to talk about peace in the world because we're not at peace internally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, this is something, um, well, I, I hear what you're saying, Matt, but I do think though, <clears throat> I would say there is a, obviously though, um, people do send their children to fight in wars and, and do so proudly, um, with tears in their eyes and, and you know what I mean? And so in other words, oh, I, was yeah, thinking, I, do. I was thinking of the phrase, an idol is anything you'll sacrifice your children to. And mm-hmm. unfortunately that is sort of, uh, nationalism and, and, uh, you know, that the flag, your love for your country and your flag is yeah. you, you'll gladly send your children off to die for yeah. some ridiculous thing. But, but you know, the, but I like what you said about this sort of personal level of it. I was reading several years ago, someone asked me to read um, some of the letters of Gandhi. And um, it was really fascinating. And it really challenged me because Gandhi talks about nonviolence, not simply as... Um, I don't, you know, uh, I don't agree with violence or I don't use violence as a method uh, of reaction. And, you know, it is that, but he, he took it to a much, much deeper level of that. It's just not even something that's part of your mind, of your life, of your, uh, reality. And, and frankly, this may sound weird, but, um, it's the reason why I stopped playing video games. Because I, I, at the time, I was struggling with the fact that, you know, I was somebody who didn't believe in violence and, uh, you know, thought uh, nonviolence was the way to go and, and pacifism and all that. And yet, you know, for fun, I would go and play a violent video game. And, you know, in the game, I've got a machine gun and I'm blowing people up and blowing their heads off and taking headshots and, and, and getting, being entertained by this violence. Now, it's not real violence, right? It's, it's mock violence. It's, it's pretend, but it's very realistic. And, and it, I just had to step back and say... Why, like, in other words, what is my commitment to nonviolence if I'm still slightly entertained by violence, if I still turn to violence as a sort of an escape or an outlet or something like that? And so, uh, and again, I'm not trying to say everybody should do this. I'm just saying like it, it kind of came down to me personally of something where like I had to figure out like how seriously I took this idea uh, of nonviolence. Like, was I willing to take it to sort of that deeper, deeper personal level of how do I respond? Um, you know, just even just the way I live my life. Well, I tell you what, what if I think just war happens a lot more than I'm, we, we put it in a military context, but let's just bring it back to the personal stuff. I mean, you, it, go on Facebook at any given day and you see just wars going on. Mm-hmm. The LGBTQ plus defenders oh, yeah. are fighting against the bigots, the, the religious bigots. It's a just war. The vice versa, the conservative folks that are mm-hmm. thinking that, you know, the liberal progressives uh, are leading the country to hell. That's a just war and they're fighting against them. You know what? We participate in those. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, so, okay. So, right. Do the LGBTQ plus people that feel uh, ostracized because folks are against them, that they feel very justified in their, in their, in their struggle. Um, uh, war there's, you can have a war against war. You right. can have a war on drugs. You can have a war on, poverty. You can have a war on all these different things. These are all just wars and we can make a case that they're just. However, at some point you have to stop fighting the wars to achieve world yeah. peace. And that doesn't mean you agree. It just means you stop fighting and you, and you, yes. in order to, yeah, I, to do that. Yeah. And that is where it gets controversial because it's like, so you just turn a blind eye to injustice. So you turn, no, but, it, no, no, no. but it's, it's, it's getting to a place at the personal level where you just stop fighting the wars, you let people be where you are and you live into a higher reality. Uh, and this again can only happen when we stop identifying with the ego because the ego needs a war to justify its existence. It, it's just a fact. 
you can't escape war without getting away from the ego. But we can get away from the ego when we begin to identify with the highest and truest, and I would say our divine self, the, the light of the world that Jesus talked about, which is what we are in our essence. We are the light. Follow Jesus, not, I don't care what tribe you put somebody on, what label you put some, just who you are. When you start to realize that self, you can't fight a war because there's nothing to fight. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and to reiterate, it's not, it's when you don't fight the war that's against you with this, you don't fight that with the same energy that it was brought to you. You know what I mean? Like you can, you can, uh, of course, justice for ostracized groups, of course, all that stuff. It's just saying that in order to actually get that justice, you can't hit them back with the same exact tit for tat. And that's what we're talking about. That's the war. That's the same energy. Um, that is kind of ruining things. So you, you've got, you got to get to a different place where you're able to, um, to fight these fights without fighting. If that makes sense, you know? No, no, exactly. And see, this is, this is exactly right. And see, I think this is where it comes down to however you get there. And, and Jamal and I might disagree on how someone gets there. Maybe, maybe we're both right. And maybe, there are multiple ways to get there, but one way or the other, we have to come to the place where we see we don't see us and them. We don't see other people as the other. That what we and I believe actually Jesus has a lot to say about that. I think that this is a big, big part of his message is that there is no other. That there is just us. And and this is the, you have to come to that place before you can even begin to love your enemy. You have to see them as human beings, just like you. You have to value their life, value their uh, their perspective, value their, their right to exist, uh, all these things. Like, and you have to do that at a basic level to love your enemy, to love other people, to become someone who is, uh, who is loving. And then, then, and only then can you not only love your enemy, but you can, you can win the battle without fighting the battle. You can disarm your enemy in a way, uh, that kind of brings them along with you rather than, uh, overcomes them, right? It's just power under versus, power over. And I do think there is something to that. I do think actually if you if you study this idea of nonviolence, if you study um different times in history when this has been employed, there's an amazing documentary called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. It's a true story. I think this happened in the 90s, early 90s I want to say, in uh, the country of Liberia, and it was a movement of women, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish women who bound together and basically overturned a dictator in their in their government um nonviolently using they would sing songs they would pray they would just basically sit uh, you know and and block the roads and and refuse to leave and i mean it was a nonviolent movement that overturned a violent dictator changed the face of that nation saved their children who were being turning it into child soldiers and all this stuff. And, and that's just one example. There's so many examples of these kinds of things throughout history where essentially love conquers hate. We're essentially, um, you know, amazing, amazing changes can be made without violence, without war. And it's possible. And we just have to be committed to finding those solutions. Yeah. And something you said earlier, Keith, reminds me, um, you said, instead of just war, you said just us, there's no them. And we have a shirt mm-hmm. on our website, heretichappyhour.com slash store that is, says just us. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And that's uh, that's why we got that shirt. So that's my way of telling people that we have a website and a store. <laughs> and one last thing before I'm done talking, uh, we have a Facebook group. So if you want to join that, well, we have two Facebook groups, sort of. We have the Heresy After Hours which we're sort of involved in. And then that's like the public group and everything. And then we have the Heretic Happy Hour podcast group specifically for the show that you must be a Patreon supporter to join. So go do that. Mm, And I'm glad you mentioned that magic word, Patreon. Uh, We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, people, amazing people. These are the best people on earth. And these people are awesome because... Um, they, they love the Heretic Cafe Hour so much. They're supporting us with a little bit of extra support every month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as a, as a thank you, we give them bonus interviews, bonus content. Um, and not, and not only that, by the way, we're, if you're a Patreon supporter, 
Uh, you have probably been waiting for this for a long time. When we first started the podcast and we first started our Patreon page, uh, we talked about doing a board game. I believe it's called The Slippery Slope. Um, well, some of you thought we'd forgotten about it. Oh, no, no, we have not forgotten about it. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so, so thrilled to announce that the Slippery Slope board game is it's nearing completion. And here's how we did it, guys. We had to go to the big guns. We reached out to probably one of the greatest uh, Christian deconstruction sort of voices that are out there. And he's also is a great artist with a great sense of humor. David Hayward. You may know him as the naked pastor. Yes. I just, I can't, I'm tingling. I can't even believe I'm saying these words in English right now. They're coming out of my mouth into the microphone and out onto the internet, but they are. Yes, guys. David Hayward, the naked pastor, is partnering with the Heretic Happy Hour to create the world's most awesome deconstruction board game, The Slippery Slope. It's coming at you. That's right. That's right. And by the way, guys, uh, we are on iTunes. And so you can you can rate us and review us. I actually, I decided to rate us and review us on iTunes. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Maybe, oh, maybe somebody I should did. do that. Maybe because it's like, <laughs> did you? I've, I've been listening to the podcast for for what, a couple of years now. So I'm like, let me, let me do that. So I wrote a review uh, on there. And did you see, did you see the ones before yours? Oh, they were terrible. Quite scathing. <laughs> Dude, we need some positive reviews. I know. Come on. Please, if, you, if you send a negative review, we'll attack you. That will be a just war. So don't, don't do that. Yes. Just positive That's right. Don't, don't make us. Stop.